will it is to renew the world fallen into sin and death. Grant, we beg you that we may discern in your Son the dawning of a true life and in him share his new creation who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen. It's fascinating stuff. Uh, that, that means that these sorts of prayers were people who, who prayed, who, who knew something. That was, uh, you know, there, there's true life distinguished from false life. And, uh, you know, the longer you go, the more you see, see what, uh, it's not just words. It actually is, there are different ways, you know, forks in the road and different ways to go. So all of that. A uh, couple of things. Sorry to be late. I always, you know, I had all that time between matins, and I thought, well, I'll have plenty to do. And then one of the things that uh, always happens is there's so much chatter, me with people and also with you. And so I'll take a bit of advice if you'd like. Uh, probably not right now, but if you want to get to me in the next couple of weeks. We are really trying to think about um, what to do this summer. Traditionally, we've had Bible study at this time in the summer. I don't know that I'm ready to give that up, but I do think that one of the things that I miss most, real honestly, is just talking to you. And, um, you know, among, our, among the space concerns that you'll hear stuff about this next week, you're going to get a survey or the week after, I think. Maybe, I think maybe next week you're going to get a survey to talk about this. But one of the, one of the problems is not just space, but actually, um, you know, space affects time, as Einstein told you. And so, uh, you know, when we're all crammed together, uh, it is, uh, uh, you know, there's never any time just to kind of look each other in the eye. And one of the things that I observe is in any group like this, whether it's women on Friday or this group when Matins offers the possibility, is that you actually have no trouble sort of engaging each other. And uh, that's probably one of the things that we do most poorly here as church and one of the things that we need to do best. So partly my question is, um, I, I always wonder in the summertime if we should just, uh, you know, put the coffee pot on at 1015 if you would just stay to talk. I wonder if that would happen. Or I wonder if there's a way to structure it that would just sort of let you, let you be with each other. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, so I don't quite know what to do, but I would certainly take your counsel on that. You know, we always want to try to get stronger and do things well. You know, the constraints of, you know, space and staff and time and your busy schedules always make it impossible to have everything we want. But how could we do the best uh, so that we get a little bit of everything? I think about that almost every year at this time, and I'm trying to, trying to figure it out again. So if you want to chatter about that, I'd be happy to hear it. Um, I need to just clean up a few things, and I, there might be some things you want to clean up as well. I know that I can sort of just keep going at the point, uh, you know, in these texts. But is anybody, do you have questions about anything or anything I should clean up? Thank you very much, Dan. Good. Thank you so much. The question is, um, Jesus is on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, if Jesus remains God, which we confess that he does, you know, how can that such, be such a thing? Um, you know, there's a couple of answers, and I'm not sure how satisfying they'll be, but uh, my first answer is, it's a little bit like uh, when Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac. There's a strange strange thing, because what you have going on there is the first commandment against the fourth commandment and the fifth commandment. That is, uh, the fifth commandment is don't murder, and the fourth commandment sharpens that, especially don't murder your son, right? 
And then you have the Lord who makes covenants, whose word you're never to obey, and whom you're never to challenge, saying, kill your son. So there are these real, there are these real times in Scripture where it is actually God against God. And it is very difficult to see your way through. And in reality, the only way through is faith. And you see that in the Isaac and Abraham story where, you know, the knife is ready to plunge into him and then the Lord stops his hand. And so it's the Lord alone who makes, uh, who, who, uh, who, it is the Lord alone who solves the mystery. And I think if you can engage what happens on the, on the cross as mystery and, and start with the idea that it's, it's the Father and the Son who are going to work this out. And the Father says to the Son, you go. And the son says, I'll go. But what he's going to is damnation. I mean, we, we, we probably don't, you know, Lent is the time of the year we try to embrace this, but maybe we don't embrace it fully, which is what it, what it means for Jesus to be on the cross is that the father damns his own son. Not just kills him, damns him. And that is, uh, when, you know, we sort of pretty that up when we say, well, Jesus suffers everything that we deserve. What we deserve is hell and damnation. And so uh, one, one has this, uh, this great burden which is, which is placed upon the Lord, uh, so much so that I'll give you another one that's difficult to sort out. Uh, when Paul says about Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin. So your next question would be, how can he be holy and also become sin? Um, exactly how these things work out, it's very difficult to say. But what we can say is what exactly happened. The Father puts the Son to the cross. The Son accepts the cross willingly. Uh, in, in willingly accepting that as a human being, uh, the outcome is not fixed. And so Jesus feels um, the full pain uh, of, of, of all sin, you know, the full weight of that. And that, the, the full pain and weight of that is what casts him down to hell. And... Uh, if he doesn't cry out, you know, you've forsaken me, then he hasn't gone all the way. His forsakenness is what, what you fear most and what I fear most is being forsaken. If he doesn't get all the way there. And I think last week Newhouse had the quote where he says, you know, the cup is put into his hand and it's only when the cup's been drunk that we know the outcome, but not in advance. Uh, and so you, the thing sort of plays itself through and one can't explain it other than uh, after the damnation of the Son, the miraculous intervention of the Father to raise him again. Right? And that's about as much as you can say, does, is he God? He's God. Does he remain God? He does. Is he human? Completely. Does he remain human? Always. Uh, you touch him on the nose today if you happen to die. Go ahead. Can he suffer? Can he su did he suffer more than a man or as a man? That's a great question. That's a great. Yeah, yeah. Does he speak as man or does he speak as God? Um, he speaks clearly as man, but he speaks also as, and this is very difficult for us to understand, uh, holy man. So sometimes in my off moments, I muse about whether Jesus walked on the water because he was because it was a miracle or simply because he was holy. 
And we'd know that if we'd met Adam and we could see. The first thing I want to say to Adam is, hey, take a step in that puddle. I want to see something. And so I just want to know if, you know, it may have been that holiness, you know, holiness is a different category that we can't quite figure out what, what that means, you know. So he suffers it as man. He clearly suffers it as holy man. And um, as you, you get to dangerous ground when you talk about God's suffering. And there's been all sorts of heresy uh, sort of in the church about that. But there is, I think what, what you can say is that uh, the father suffers in the way that a son is lost and the son uh, suffers in the way of being lost. And that is, this is I, think, I think sometimes we underestimate what happens on the cross because we don't understand uh, the brutality that is suffered by the Holy Trinity uh, in the death of Jesus Christ. The great sadness there and the real death of Christ. But one has to be very careful because we move to things that are difficult to talk about and um, difficult to express fully. You know, it's, 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 it's tender ground. You just want to move carefully. That would be fair. That sin, uh, the, the, he said that one way to explain it is that sin is, is so deplorable that he turns his back, and that would be a fair way of saying it. Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome. Anything else? Just lying around out there, please. Karen. Yeah, uh, there's a couple of ways to, uh, we do say in the creed, he descended into hell, and then we don't say an awful lot more. The reason we don't say an awful lot more is that scripture doesn't say an awful lot more. You have just a reference or two about it in the scripture. And so we're very careful to say what scripture says and then be careful not to speculate beyond. There is a, a long tradition in the Orthodox Church, and you'll often see it at the bottom of icons. This is why, you know, things that make me, uh, I, that I get so enthusiastic about, I also have to be very careful with. There is, a, there is a long tradition in the church about the harrowing of hell. That is, there is this sense that Adam and Eve and all the believers before them really went to, uh, you know, this netherworld, Sheol, and waited for the day when uh, Jesus was crucified and died. And then Jesus, uh, after his death, heads to hell and opens hell and lets him out. And you'll often see that as uh, in, in icons or in religious paintings, Adam and Eve, and then all the saints emerging behind them, and they'll often be kind of scattered on the ground. In fact, we ran, if we may, run the icon of the resurrection uh, on the back of the Easter bulletin, but we didn't call your attention to this, and nobody asked, so when we just sort of wink and nod. But in the bottom of that, uh, there was a hatchet and some keys and some locks, and in that was uh, the notion uh, that, that the Lord sort of sprung them loose. Uh, you know, uh, you know that's, not a, that's not what happens. Uh, what happens is the moment you die, you head to heaven. And there's all kinds of things, all kinds of proof for that, from Jesus telling a story about um, Abram, Abraham already being in heaven to the thief who says today and not tomorrow. So, uh, you know, what does happen is that people who died in advance of Jesus uh, died believing toward him just the way that when you die, 
you'll go directly to heaven, leaving um, back at him. You know, there are people who believed him forward, and there are people who believed him backwards. It was a very lucky few who only saw him in the flesh. So uh, he descends into hell to say, uh, you know, all is well. And I think if you saw um, uh, or, or, or heard about uh, the, uh, the Passion of the Christ, there is that point where the world sort of wretches at Jesus' death, and there is this great uh, teardrop that falls from heaven, uh, the Father's tear at the death of his son that sort of splashes down and washes the world. And then the next bit, I think, if I'm remembering the sequence right, the next bit is where this very attractive, winsome uh, Satan, who's been sort of androgynous and enticing and soft-spoken, just, just kind of wails, just screeches at the notion of uh, that the Lord has made it through. It's like suddenly all things are clear. And that, I think, is, um, uh, speaks to the descent into hell. So it's, it's a victory tour, if you will. You know, it's the checkered flag thing. Uh, that's what's going on there. Okay, anything else? Yes, please. So that's not the same three purposes on the third day he rose again. Yeah. Yeah, we've always just... <laughs> Good for you. Uh, <laughs> Stellwagen, where's the Latin book? Uh, yeah, um, you know, again doesn't mean... Again doesn't mean twice. Uh, you know, again in that context is, is a sequential, a timing aspect. So he dies, he gets buried, he descends, he rises up, ascends. You know, it's sort of a, I think it's, I think it's an old English uh, Latin translation. I can't tell you what that word is just off the top of my head, but if you uh, really want to know, I've got, a, I've got a book that parses all that out, and I'd be happy to have a look at it with you. But it doesn't, it's not like there were two resurrections. That's clearly not what's meant. It's this sort of, ordering of the sequential. And you know, one thing, we get stuck with language and we're, 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 we hardly ever will change it. Of course, we will change if it says one holy Catholic apostolic church. We'll change that part <laughs> because God knows that you people are too stupid to be able to know a big C from a small C, you know. I mean, you, it would just be nice if we could sort of restore that word. I mean, Catholic just means universal, uh, you know, small C. It just means it's everywhere, which is the thing that we'd really like to be confessing, that we're part of the everywhere church. But, uh, you know, 500 years isn't a very long time in the church, and we haven't sort of screwed up the courage to, you know, say that yet. So, all right, what else? Anything else? Thank you. Yes, what she was. Okay, good. <laughs> good, good. Yeah. Good. Brilliant. It's according to the scriptures. Now, I was going to say, when you take your wife this, this summer on that Da Vinci Code tour to Paris, you know, you'll find out there are other scriptures available. Uh, so there are, t there are at least, the, for them it meant um, promise and fulfillment. And you sort of get that in Matthew's gospel. You know, he did this, you know, to fulfill, in this was fulfilled. So there's promise and fulfillment. But honestly, um, in our day, you know, we stretch the definition to mean there are all sorts of other scriptures there's a, uh, a Quran uh, around, and, and uh, you know, there's, there's, uh, there, there's the, the, the Tao Te Ching. There's all kinds of things you can be reading. But according to these scriptures, prophecy, 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 prophecy and fulfillment. So, and it's amazing how the, 
I told the women on Friday this, I, you know, I don't do this by habit, so I don't want you to think ill of me, but I was flipping through the channels and found Larry King, who, uh, you know, uh, hey, here's another softball coming right at you. So, uh, but they had lined up in a row uh, an atheist, a television guy, a Catholic priest, a woman who seemed like she might be some sort of medium. I didn't watch long enough to figure that out. Communicates with the dead. Uh, sort of a, a woman who was sort of a, new, yeah, she was a spiritualist. Yeah, that's the polite way to talk about people. Uh, and, and, and a rabbi and a, and a Muslim cleric. And it was fascinating because they said, the question was what, 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 happens, what happens when you die or how do you get to heaven? And you went right down the list and they went, good deeds, good deeds, good deeds. Good. It was fascinating because the rabbi said good deeds and then he said a lot of other things and then the Muslim cleric said good deeds. And then they had the atheist and she said, well, there's no heaven, but it's all about good deeds. So it's fascinating, you know, and against that runs prophecy and fulfillment of grace alone. This is fascinating. There's only two things going on in the world. One is your work and the other is the Lord's work and you need to take a choice. Anything else? Yeah, I didn't, I got to confess that I didn't, um, <clears throat> I didn't stay long enough there. I have a limited uh, tolerance, you know, in my off hours for heresy. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, I just, I just sort of, I just sort of moved on. As soon as, as soon as all my presuppositions were confirmed and, you know, I just sort of, sort of moved. you know how this is, don't you? Or maybe you don't. So, uh, <clears throat> I just, I want to draw one thing to your attention that I didn't do last time. Schlecht, it's great to have you back. Nice to see you again. You're looking well. Your wife's as beautiful as always. Yes, it is. That's right. Very nice. Oh my gosh. You know, the thing is, is as a senior pastor, you never want to have staff that are more clever than you are. It's really, it's really, not, really not good. Uh, I just want to observe one thing, uh, if I could, uh, about John's Gospel. And I, and I put this, I don't, you don't need to find this, but this is um, under the I thirst bit, it was point five, and I just wanted to point this out to you. Two cool things that are happening there. One is, um, that you remember that this comes in John's Gospel, I Thirst, it's the only one that's recorded. And that's a fascinating thing because throughout the Gospel, uh, it's all about, there's all these things about water. You know, Nicodemus, how do I get water in the Word, chapter three. Four, the woman in, at Samaria. Uh, uh, and even in, in, in seven, uh, Jesus comes up to the temple and gives his great speech about, uh, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part in me, and he does that at the Feast of Booths, which is the memory of when they wandered in the desert and were thirsty. Fascinating stuff. So Jesus regularly invokes this notion of how thirsty Israel is during the Exodus when they wander, uh, at the well when they've got nothing to draw with. He, he regularly invokes this, and, and it's a fascinating thing to see him proclaim, I thirst, where he becomes Israel. He becomes you and he dies in your place. Uh, he thirsts so you don't have to. There's, there's just a fascinating thing going on there. The other thing I want to draw to your attention, and, and you, you um, I'm sure know this, is uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have uh, the, the Holy Supper, but John doesn't. That always mystifies people. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have it, but John doesn't. But then you say, or does he? And you remember John was the one disciple who lived of the original 13, 12 plus 1, Matthias. He was the one who wasn't martyred. And so he had the long view 
and uh, he writes a very theological gospel. That is, uh, it's not just the reporting, but there's, there's so much. He, he spins it round and tells a story underneath the story, if only you would pay attention. Uh, he's trying to draw you into something bigger. And so you remember that when Jesus is on the cross, well, first you remember uh, what a big deal uh, the Passover was for Jews. And then you remember when Jesus is on the cross, um, all the things that happened in John's gospel. That the first thing that John the baptizer says in 129 is, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And suddenly you're thinking, boom, the Lamb of God, Passover. And then you remember at Passover, the way you got saved at Passover was you took the hyssop, uh, this plant, and you dipped it in the blood of the Lamb of God, and then you put it on your doorpost uh, and the lintel, and of course it makes the sign of the cross, do with that what you want. And then... Uh, Later, Jesus speaks of eating his, eating his body and drinking his blood. And um, then, and this is, I have to double check this, but I just will put this to you, that Jesus is judged at noon in John nineteen fourteen, which is precisely uh, the hour when the slaughter of the Passover lambs began at the temple. That's a new fact for me. I just have it in one place, but I've got to check that. If that's true, that is fascinating, that Jesus is judged at precisely the point when the slaughter of the Passover lambs began in the temple. That is, that's the kind of thing that makes the hair stand up on your neck if that's true. And then you see, when Jesus is on the cross, what John is doing is having a holy supper in chancel drama. There's the Lamb of God, and the hyssop is there, tying it to the Passover, and he's the body, and the wine comes up, you remember, at the I thirst point. And so all the elements of all the things are there. And what John is trying to point you to is that this is the one who gives his body to eat and blood to drink for your salvation. And you remember then that John also writes Revelation, where uh, in the Revelation, uh, regularly, but I can give you 13.8, but several other places, Jesus is spoken of as the lamb who is slain from the foundation of the world. God's solution to our problem. It's just brilliant stuff. But unless you sort of sort of take that out, and that all pulls out of I thirst. At the I thirst point, it's, you know, what's he thirst for? You know, they give him wine. And, and how do they give it? By way of hyssop. To whom do they give it? The Lamb of God. And what's he doing there? His body and blood are being separated. The technical definition of a sacrifice is you separate the body and blood. So they separate him at the point when they pierce him, and pierce his side, and of course, you remember uh, at, at, at the piercing of his side, water and blood flow out, which is, of course, the way you're saved, by way of water and blood, and the words that tell you that water and blood were there. This is utterly sacramental. You just can't escape it, if you have ears to hear. And if you don't, and, and if your evangelical friends argue against that, just sort of nod along and go to the next thing. But next time you read through John's Gospel, you might think about it. Okay. All right, one last swing. Uh, it is finished, and now, you know, I'm finished too almost because I'm so far behind. But you should have. Does anybody need this, the sixth word? Anybody need this? Got it? We'll bring you one. Raise your hand if you need it. <coughs> okay. And I've tried to say this to you before, and I'll lead again with this, that it's not I am finished, but it is finished. It's not I'm done for. It's... Uh, the work is done.
And in that, then, I tried to remember that Christ is the telos of the law. Telos is the, is the name for the end point. It's Romans 10, 4. Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the telos of the law. Um, just uh, go to page 203 on this. It's the last uh, page. Uh, of what's going on here. Christ is the telos of the law. It says, it's, it says the sacrifice on the right. Don't try to sort this out in a systematic fashion. Danny wrote that just for you and, and for me. What sin caused what consequence and why? Who precisely is responsible for what and how? At the foot of the cross, it may seem everything is in a muddle. Clear laws of cause and effect are thrown into consternation. In the veneration of the cross, three truths cut searingly through the muddle. First, we're implicated, deeply implicated, so it's for my sin he dies. During Holy Week's readings of the Passion story, the congregation joins us crying out, crucify him, crucify him. It's not what they did, it's what we did and what we do. Second, and despite all, God is holy and God is strong. God is immortal. If we lose our hold on that truth, everything is lost. Third, and this is the paradox at the heart of the muddle, God's loss of everything on the cross, his taking our place, is our only hope that all is not lost. Holy is the God-man, holy, vulnerable, and faithful. Holy, immortal, one dying and dead. Have mercy on us, Agnes Dei, Miserere Nobis. Here we lay down our burdens. Here we collapse under our burdens. In the Good Friday liturgy, the priests and deacons like prostrate claps before the cross. St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York is directly across from Rockefeller Center. If any of you have been there, you can imagine this now. And at the entrance to Rockefeller Center is the great sculptor of Atlas. You remember that? All right. On Good Friday, this is, fat, this is the stuff you can't make up. On Good Friday, the doors of the cathedral are open, and you can see the great cross from the street Turn in one direction, and there is the mythical atlas holding up the world. Turn in the other, and there is the one broken by the world. Which image speaks the truth? Is the world upheld by our godlike strength or by the crucified love of God? Upon that decision, simply everything turns. Come follow me, says Jesus. That's just brilliant stuff. So what happens then is that there is this winsome end game, this inviting thing. Why is it winsome? Because honestly, it is the only thing that offers freedom and peace. I mean, the only thing the church has got, the only thing the church has got is the forgiveness of sins. And when the church doesn't have forgiveness of sins, then, you know, we should lock the door. Because you can get everything else that the church delivers Counseling, goodwill, a good school, you know, softball teams. You, know, you can get all of that somewhere else. The only game in town for the church is the forgiveness of sins. I mean, that is it. And so, I push you to point three. It is finished here should be taken in the sense of consummatum est. It is consummated. It is fulfilled. It is brought to completion, brought to perfection. 
Uh, I'm trying to remember what I um, gave you to read. I feel bad that I've held these things out for you and not read them because uh, they are so, so well done. You know, I'll leave you, um, I'll leave you to read that Hauerwas bit, but it's quite nice. <clears throat> the only thing the church can do is um, live in peace and freedom. And, you know, I would have looked up those texts and read them for you exactly, but I can tell you what they say. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. There's a fascinating thing after you read the first four chapters of Galatians, all about how Christ has died in your place. Then the next thing he says in, 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 verse, in, in chapter 5, the first thing he says is, For freedom Christ has set us free. And then in chapter 6 he says, Let's do some good. Which Lutherans always, they sort of, you know, can't quite take that, but honestly, after you've read the first four chapters, um, uh, you know, then the fifth chapter, for freedom Christ has set us free, and six, uh, 610 is something like, let's go do some good. I got a letter back this week about the capital campaign letter I sent to you, uh, protesting that I had erred on the side of uh, being anthropocentric rather than Christocentric which is, uh, you know, sort of a, it's a heavy charge for a pastor, and then you have to kind of think about that. And, uh, you know, I, I, was a, I always appreciate, it was a, it was a very kind, uh, in spirit sort of letter, and I, I, I sort of wrote back and said, well, um, uh, one must see things in context. One must see things uh, in the context of the verse, uh, love at full strength, and then see things in the context of St. John Lutheran Church, where we sort of do, you know, back handsprings trying to get Christ to the front of the line. And then occasionally, you know, we'll, we'll say something like, you know, real honestly, you people have enough resources, you could do anything you want to do. That, in fact, is true, but in me saying that, you shouldn't hear me detaching that in any way from Christ. It's a little what Paul does when he writes four chapters about how the law will never save you, the only thing that can save you is Christ, and then he says, now you're free, chapter 5, and get busy in chapter 6. So there is a way that you could say get busy to, even to Lutherans. Uh, you know, it's not easy, and it takes some time, and it can be misunderstood, but occasionally uh, it may be the thing that you need to hear. And so, um, you know, that life can be difficult, life together. I think, you know, we sort of learn that as we go. Uh, it can be difficult, but it's not impossible, and it is the best possible life. I mean, what is really meant for us to do is to, uh, you know, to carry on together, you know, to live um, in love. Turn to, uh, turn to 198. Uh, this is be the f about the second thing. It says death on a Friday noon. At, uh, it's death on a Friday afternoon at the top. I'd commend both of these books to, to your reading. The Hauerwas book is very short. The uh, Newhouse book is very long. In fact, it's exhausting. Um, I'm so exhausted by the, by the ideas, kind of I can't read a whole chapter at one time. It's amazingly, uh, what's well, a pouring out of a man's whole life into, into these words, and it's, it's quite nice. In the pitch darkness of that night, we wrestle with abandonment to discover we're wrestling with the abandoned one. You remember uh, in the wilderness, wrestling with the angel? Before he goes home, Jacob, tell me your name. I can't tell you. And he touches his foot and puts him out of place. And then he moves on. We're wrestling with the abandoned one. In the experience of abandonment by God, we are most securely embraced 
in the love of the Father. See, Christ is abandoned and we're embraced. This love of God is the very life of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the love of the Father that incorporates the God-forsakenness of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we say here every week, that it's the love of the Father that put the Son on the cross, and that love is extended to us in word and sacrament by the power of the Holy Spirit. What is definitively finished is the power of division to divide, of separation to separate. From now on, in the abandonment of Christ, the alone are never alone. This is because, paradoxical as it may sound, aloneness is no longer alone, but has been brought into the good company of God. He even redeems aloneness. We may go further and speak of the good company who is God, although the usual word is not company but communion. God is what happens between Jesus and his Father in their spirit, writes Jensen. This is another way of saying that God is love. For what happens in the life of God is love. The human suffering and the death of Jesus is an event in the triune life of God. And because Christ is also word by whom and through whom everything exists and is sustained, all innocent suffering and death has been enclosed in the life of God. Every heartbroken cry of, oh, my, oh, my lamb, is taken up and uh, finally overtaken in Agnes Dei, qui tolus peccatum Monday, in whom is our peace, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is great stuff. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, read the right side too, where he talks about the death of his parents. It's fascinating stuff. I, 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 I am always prompted to think of those who have died at the point of the supper with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven. It's it just quite, quite nice. Six. As the work of the cross is finished, Christ is triumphant. And I think, um, you, know, I, you know, I think I told you I had some hesitancy about speaking to this. In the days after Easter, you know, we got jumbled a bit with our schedules and things happening and moving around. And so, you know, this was meant to be your Lenten discipline and then move you to Easter and then you'd be free in these 50 days. So I, I was quite uh, concerned about pushing on beyond Easter. And yet, uh, even in these days after Easter, it is what we live. The world pushes back against the triumph and against all who embrace it. So I, I'm, uh, I am surprised in myself and in you when uh, we struggle and then are surprised by our struggle. And it's because we were, grew up with a, with a, with a, with a, uh, a, a false notion of who Christ was. And that's been sort of extended by uh, living in America, where Christ is, you know, Jesus Christ is CEO. You know, you can hardly imagine that there could be a book title like that, let alone a whole book written that way. The rest of the world understands him not that way. They understand him as living in a base camp in Nicaragua and being on the side of the poor. But we have, we have a skewed notion of who Jesus is. And then uh, the re what sort of slaps us out of that is when we take Jesus into the world and we struggle. 
And we ought to remember that Jesus lost more disciples than he gained. You know, John 8, where everybody leaves, is, is, is sort of great. That's where we understand what we're, whom we're with and what we're up against. When everybody says, when he talks this way, it hurts my ears, now it's time for us to go home. You can sort of see mothers, you know, putting their hands over the children's ears as Jesus speaks. We should be seeing, hearing that. You know, it's, it's time to go home now. Well, he was a nice man when he was feeding us lunch, and it was, he could make the spots come off a leper, but when he starts to talk about being the Messiah, it's time to go home. Well, you know, you carry that out into the world. And I, I wonder if you could um, take that seriously. We, 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 are, we, are, we are measured up by how well we can read Galatians through the first four chapters and then read chapter five, you're free, and six, do some good. You know, that, sort of, that, sort of puts the, uh, that sort of puts us to the test. God has finished what only God could finish. Christ's sacrifice is a gift that exceeds every debt. You see, he forgives more sins than you've got. Our sins have been consumed, making possible lives that glow with the beauty of God's spirit. That is what the church is meant to be about. That is what makes the church attractive. That is why people join the church. And that is why it is so important that when you go out, you live, uh, as the epistle says today, after the example of Christ. Most people join the church, and most people enroll their kids in a, in a Lutheran school because they look at you and say, whatever you've got, I want some of that. At that point, your task is not to point them to yourself, but to point them toward Christ who is delivered in word and sacrament. The church in our age, and I'm fairly convinced now that I will, um, you know, die before this ends, and I, but I rejoice, I'm driving this morning rejoicing that I hope that my kids, the church swings, you know, side to side like a pendulum, and I'm happy to be, for, you know, this is for an odd reason, I'm happy that the sickness that atta has attacked the church in my age, um, I'm happy to have it because I pray that the pendulum will swing back and the nonsense will go away in my kids' generation. It'll be either that or my kids will have no place to go to church. Uh, and I've begun to make contingency plans for that as well. So, when the church cannot be distinguished from the world, then the church should close up shop. What that means is, for you and for me, is that everything we do here is measured by a single criterion. Does it bear Christ on the cross? If it doesn't bear Christ on the cross, you know, turn off the lights and lock the doors. Let's go do something else. If it does, then you should bear that into the world, and when people see that in you, that what you have is in fact an otherworldly thing, your task is to bring them back in. And anything you do that runs against that holds people out of the church, and anything you do in the way of Christ draws people in. And that really has to be the next thing, making possible lives that glow with the beauty of God's spirit. 
So, last thing. This is a cry of victory, and Good Friday is really good. It wasn't misnamed. The church knew what it was doing. And sometimes, in Lent, you know, penitence goes wrong. It's good to have some penitence, but it's, it's good to know that the, the quarantine ends in on the cross, which is a good day. Some with Pilate ask, what is truth? To those who sincerely ask the question, the answer proposed is this. The truth, the truth about everything, is Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is not the answer the world expected then or expects now. And that's what you're up against. But on the other hand, there isn't anything else. This is it. Thanks. Uh, let's pray and let's go. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.